0: Tumor Talks, a podcast about clinical cases and oncology, and we are your hosts.
1: I'm Dr. Kathy Marshall, a medical oncologist. I'm Dr. Beatrice
0: Wills, a medical oncologist and hematologist. And I'm Dr. Jonah Amata, an internal medicine resident physician. Morning
1: everyone and thank you for joining us in our first episode of CLL. I'm very excited to have Dr. Megan Thompson joining us. She's a clinical investigator and assistant attending at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And we will learn about CLL today. Hi Megan, thanks so much for uh, being here. Thank you so
2: much for having me.
1: So Megan, I'm really excited to learn a little bit about CLL, how common it is, Tell me a little bit about who gets CLL. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: so, CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia is um, a very unique disease. You know, overall, it is uh, rare, as all blood cancers are, um, but it is the most common leukemia that is diagnosed in Western countries. Um, It has an average uh, age at diagnosis, depending on the study, around age 70 to 72 years. Uh, More common in men than women, Um, about two-thirds of patients um, are men. Although the average age is in older patients, um, you know, we have patients here in our practice at Memorial sloan Kettering that come range from, you know, their 20s and, and beyond. So it does occur also in younger patients.
1: Interesting. And do you know what the risk factors are, especially for those who present in a younger age?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Beatrice. Um, you know, despite extensive research uh, on the topic in 2023, we still don't truly know what causes CLL. You know, it does appear, as you mentioned, in general to be a disease of the aging, but we haven't identified a common genetic cause or other exposure cause, um, especially for the younger patients. Most cases actually appear not to be inherited. Um, A majority of cases are de novo with no family history, although we do definitely see CLL cluster in certain families, and there's been research on this topic um, but there hasn't been one uniting uh, genetic uh, marker like um, a mutation in the BRCA gene, for example, for breast cancer. There's nothing like that to identify the, the small proportion of CLL cases that are inherited, although it's definitely an, an area of ongoing research.
1: Cool. And how do people usually present? Is it just an incidental finding on routine blood work? What do you usually see in your clinic? Yeah, the
2: most common um, presentation is just what you mentioned, an incidental finding um, A patients feeling well and they have uh, blood work with their primary care physician, um, a complete blood count for either a preoperative workup, um, just a routine check-in or, or investigation of some other medical problem, and are found to have um, a lymphocytosis um, and um, leukocytosis, um, and referred to, to hematology. Um, there are other patients who have, you know, CAT scans for investigation of another medical problem are found to have enlarged lymph nodes. And really one of the unique things about CLL is, um, you know, in some patients, the disease is more nodal, uh, in the lymph nodes and some patients the disease is more more in the blood. So uh, depending kind of on on what phenotype the patient has, the presentation uh, can can really uh, vary.
1: right, like CLL versus SLL. Yeah, um,
2: exactly.
1: Okay, got it. And uh, so like what threshold for the internist listening to us? what threshold of an absolute lymphocyte count do you think would prompt a referral to a hematologist, oncologist?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say any um, lymphocyte count that is persistent um, with no other persistently elevated lymphocyte count above the, you know, upper limit and normal of your lab um, that is not associated with, you know, a clear other etiology, like the patient just had a bacterial viral infection. Um that is, you know, you recheck the, the lymphocyte count and it's still elevated, I think those patients should be um, checked out by, by a hematologist. The reason being, you know, it, CLL is also unique because like some other, you know, in, indolent uh, lymphomas, we don't treat everyone with CLL. Um, approximately a third of patients with CLL um, are, you know, required treatment right at the time of diagnosis. Approximately another third of patients never need treatment for their CLL and can be managed with a program of active observation. And then about another third of patients don't need treatment right away, um, but might need treatment during their lifetime. But the unique thing is even for those patients who don't need treatment, um, the CLL does have some effect on the immune system, increased risk of, of other cancers. And so it's good for the diagnosis to be made, and those patients to uh, see a hematologist or a hematologist oncologist, ultimately to make sure the preventative care aspects are are being addressed.
1: Right, and when you say persistent, you'd say lymphocytosis uh, beyond or lasting beyond three months.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's a, it's a good question. We have some um, criteria, our um, IWCLL criteria. Um, uh, the first author is, is Michael Halleck, last published in Blood in 2018, and that will, you know, outline the exact diagnostic criteria, but, but definitely a lymphocytosis uh, persisting for more than three months with, or, or a lymphocytosis without, you know, a clear etiology, I would refer to a hematologist.
1: You maybe go over that diagnostic criteria and what other workup do you usually recommend when you first see a patient with lymphocytosis?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, when a patient comes in with an elevated lymphocyte count, um, you know, a lot of times we're seeing that the patient, um, when there's some suspicion already, you know, being at a cancer center, that other etiologies like viral infection, for example, have been ruled out. And so, the first test and really the key test to perform is peripheral blood flow cytometry. Um, to, you know, further, in addition to complete blood count where you evaluate, um, not only the white count, but, um, hemoglobin and platelets, um, to evaluate, uh, for basically a clonal B cell population, um, and CLL can be defined pathologically. Um, the diagnosis can be made by peripheral blood flow cytometry. Um, every lab's a little bit different. What, what cell markers they include, um, But in general, CD5 positive, CD20 DIM, CD23 positive, um, CD200 positive, um, and typically the CLL will be lambda, lambda, kappa, light train restricted. Um, And then we also perform cytogenetic testing, specifically fish testing for translocation 1114 uh, because that actually would point more towards a diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma than CLL if, if that translocation is, is present. So really the peripheral blood flow cytometry in combination with the fish testing uh, specifically for translocation 11,14 are what I really like to see in most cases if, if the CLL is reading the textbooks to make, you know, the pathologic diagnosis. Um, you know, in addition to that, definitely, um, a physical examination is actually really important in this disease and not all patients weren't imaging, which I think really sets it apart from other cancers. The staging is actually clinical staging. Rye staging can be, um, done from a blood count, um, and physical exam of the lymph nodes, as well as, um, spleen and liver size, um. And, um, you know, when we first see a patient, those are really like the the key workup to to make the diagnosis. Now, if a patient has um, other uh, abnormalities in terms of anemia or thrombocytopenia, then a a workup for alternative etiologies of those cytopenias is warranted. So I send for iron studies, if they're anemic B12 folate, Patients with CLL are predisposed to autoimmune hemolytic anemia, um, so to checking um, uh, LDH and haptoglobin and, and as well as a Coombs test if anemia is present, um, among other causes of anemia. Same thing with thrombocytopenia. We see an incidence of, you know, um, increased incidence of ITP or immune-mediated thrombocytopenia in patients with CLL. And so um, that workup should be performed. Not everyone needs a bone marrow biopsy, but if you have really unexplained um, cytopenias, that's when um, I would proceed with like a bone marrow biopsy for for diagnostic confirmation. So the bone marrow is kind of on a case-by-case basis. Same thing with a lymph node biopsy. Um, not every patient will require a lymph node biopsy, but um, patients who have uh, B symptoms um, like drenching night sweats, unintentional weight loss, and fevers, um, we can see uh, Richter's transformation of CLL, which is most commonly to diffuse large B cell lymphoma or a rapidly growing lymph node you know, out of proportion to other lymph nodes. Um, it would be important to to do a PET scan and roll out Richter transformation with a a core excisional biopsy of a lymph node. So it's really um, a lot of the the testing beyond the blood testing um, is not required in every patient, but really on a a case-by-case basis with uh, certain patients.
1: Great, and for those patients presenting with lymphadenopathy suggestive of small lymphocytic lymphoma, or those who have elevated PET, um SUV on PET beyond ten or so, are there any other pathologic histologic characteristics that you would like to mention? You, you mentioned yeah. Richter's transformation. Any other? I don't know, and you know phenotypic characteristics. Anything? Yeah, so the immunofi- thats a great point, Beatrice—to
2: distinguish between CLL and SLL. So CLL really is defined by a, a quantitative criteria of uh, greater than five thousand monoclonal B cells per microliter um, in the peripheral blood, and so we will have, you know, several patients who don't meet who have a um, CLL-like immunophenotype in the peripheral blood, but don't meet the criteria for CLL. So really the two possibilities that arise from that are that this could be a pre-CLL or monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. Um, that would be in the absence of any, any nodal disease and a pathologic node generally defined as 1.5 centimeters or more. Um, or the other possibility in the presence of nodal disease or anomegaly could be um, SLL or small lymphocytic lymphoma um and you know it it the lymph node biopsy uh for sll um you see uh small lymphocytes like in the name and you see the same um immunophenotypic, um characteristics that i mentioned with the the cll. Um the Richter's transformation um most commonly is to diffuse large B cell lymphoma and that's kind of like a whole nother topic. Um, if it's really transformed from the underlying CLL, it's what we call clonally related, and there's testing that can be done to prove that. And you really need to see sheets of um, of large cells, um, the pathologist does in the biopsy to, to call it true Richter's transformation. There's a whole spectrum of other presentations of, of CLL and SLL that can be um, more aggressive or what's called sometimes accelerated CLL um, with increased uh, para-immunoblasts, um, but not quite meeting that that criteria for um, Richter transformation.
1: Okay, great. And um, what, I, what about uh, specific molecular markers? You mentioned some more, the fish, any other markers that you look at? in terms of prognostication?
2: Absolutely, so um, at the time of diagnosis, the one FISH testing that's really required is the translocation 1114. Here at Memorial, we do tend to um, do kind of a prognostic profile, as you mentioned at the time of diagnosis. It's not fully required because it doesn't determine the need for treatment or not, but it is required prior to initiation of therapy. Um, and we can talk about kind of the criteria that are laid out by the IWCLL for when we start treatment. Um, but to answer your question, um, we sh- you should do prognostic testing, including FISH and or SNP array we use actually here you know, um, to look for cytogenetic abnormalities, such as the common ones being um, deletion 17 p. really can... Um, influence therapeutic decisions. So that's deletion or loss of the P53 gene. Um, Other common abnormalities include deletion um, 11q, deletion 13q, trisomy 12. Um, Every patient should have the IGHV mutational status tested. We do that here by next generation sequencing. Um, And with IGHV mutated Uh, patients generally having a more favorable uh, prognosis than those unmutated, although our understanding of that's becoming even a little bit more nuanced. There are some high-risk families of IGHV mutated patients. Um, And then the one other sequencing test I would say is mandatory prior to treatment initiation, but we often do hear Um, prior to, you know, as a baseline in patients is to look at the TP53 mutational status by next generation sequencing or or rapid PCR. This is because, um, you know, you can have deletion of the P53 gene, but you can also have um, mutation. And in fact, the most common Scenario is for patients to have deletion of one allele of p53 and then on the other to have a mutated copy. Um, and we know these patients are higher risk and also resistant to chemoimmunotherapy. Um, and so, definitely prior to treatment, this is important. We do do a more expanded next generation sequencing panel. Um, here at MSK um, and many people um, have their own version of that at different centers um, and there's send out testing to labs that you can do. Um, and that can give a baseline look, although none of those mutations beyond P53 currently um, influence uh, standard of care treatment.
1: Great, and when you're initially um see a patient with CLL besides obviously taking care of the patient directly are there any other specialists? anything else that you discuss with patients when they're initially diagnosed
2: yeah absolutely so the initial visit in addition to confirming the diagnosis with the testing that we discussed doing the physical exam to complete staging um you know, I, I talked to the patients, you know, first, um, I think we should mention like the reasons that we would need to start treatment. And really, that's if the CLL is or SL is causing a problem. So the ways that typically manifests are, you know, bigger bulky lymph nodes, and there's no really one size cutoff. I mean, the C- IWCL guidelines mention 10 centimeters, but like, clearly, it depends where the node is in the body, if it's pressing on an organ causing symptoms that would be a reason to start treatment, Um, anemia or thrombocytopenia that are felt to be due to the CLL itself, Um, autoimmune cytopenias that aren't controlled by, you know, or refractory to steroid based therapy. Um, uh, And then um, some patients have symptoms like drenching sweats, fevers, fatigue um, that can't, you know, we do an investigation, we don't find another cause for it. Um, beyond that, um, you know, in all patients, those requiring treatment, those not, I do focus on the, the effects on the immune system of, of CLL. So we know that patients with CLL, um, not only are there, you know, these CLL cells are B cells or B lymphocytes, um, your antibody producing cells, but we know that actually the T cells of CLL patients, another, you know, important part of the immune system are, are, you know, dysfunctional compared to someone without CLL. Um, And we do see a higher incidence of a more severe infection. Um, So for patients, I do recommend that they get vaccinated, no live virus vaccines. Those are contraindicated in patients with CLL, but I recommend an annual flu vaccine, Um, you know, the two-part pneumococcal vaccine series, Shingrix vaccination, um, and COVID, now bivalent vaccination. Um, You know, it is true that some CLL patients don't respond as well. They don't have a robust immune response to to vaccines. Um, And so the practice on the vaccinations actually can vary even between CLL expert to CLL expert. Um, I generally recommend vaccines because um, they've been proven to be safe in CLL patients. Um, and even if, you know, you don't have as robust immune response, you might, we're like not really great at predicting which patients will and will not have a response. So I tend to, to recommend the vaccination. We check patients' um, IgG levels um, because we do see hypogammaglobulinemia in patients and, if patients are having recurrent sinopulmonary infections, like multiple infections a year requiring antibiotics and their IgG levels are less than 500, IVIG as a preventative measure um, can be given. Um, and then the other big thing is, in addition to all you know, routine following with primary care physician, is that we see an increased incidence of secondary malignancies. Skin cancer is one of the most common. And so I recommend an annual dermatology skin check. Um, So patients should follow with a dermatologist, um, you know, at least once a year for a routine skin check, um, or as recommended by the dermatologist, if they do have a skin cancer history, um, and then staying up to date on the recommended cancer screening for that patient's age, so definitely colonoscopy uh, for women, mammograms, uh, pap smear um, for men, uh, PSA screening. Um, and we do see, you know, overall higher risk of other cancers um, too, both in, in treated and uh, untreated patients.
1: Oh, well. Wow. That's a lot. It sounds like they really need an excellent primary care physician and into their health. There's a bunch of things that they, they should be aware of.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The first visit is uh, typically, you know, a long conversation to introduce all of this. Um, and it is one of these, um, cancers that, you know, really is chronic. And so, um, some of these preventative aspects, even if the patient, you know, doesn't meet criteria for treatment are, are really important to attend to because um, our hope and the, the reality now is that many patients live, you know, decades alongside the, the disease.
1: Megan, thank you so much for going over this. I would love to um, have you back for another episode where we talk about therapeutics, maybe uh, MRD-driven therapies, clinical trials. There's a lot of exciting things going on on CLL. We've learned a lot from you. Thank you, Megan.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Beatrice. I would be happy to talk again on another episode.
0: So to recap, CLL is the most common leukemia diagnosed in Western countries, with age of diagnosis usually 70 to 72 years. It is more common in men than it is in women and most of the CLL we see are de novo cases rather than those that are genetically passed down. The most common incidental finding of a patient coming in with newly diagnosed CLL is lymphocytosis and leukocytosis. Notably, lymphocytosis persisting more than three months or lymphocytosis without clear etiology should be prompting you to refer someone to a hematologist or oncologist. Workup for CLL usually includes a bone marrow biopsy, peripheral blood flow cytometry, fish testing, especially for translocation 11-14 since that points towards mantle cell more than CLL, and if patients have B symptoms, it's important to have a PET scan and core excisional biopsy to roll out Richter's transformation. Some things we can also get for prognostic testing, um, at SKCC they get fish testing, SNP testing, and IGHB mutation testing thing to note is that patients with CLL are immune deficient due to the fact that the T cells are dysfunctional compared to a person without CLL and therefore they have a higher incidence of more severe infections. So for a PCP taking care of someone with CLL, it's important for you to recommend your patient to get vaccines but no live virus vaccines please. There's also an increased incidence of secondary malignancies and the most common being skin cancers so make sure they follow up with dermatology yearly. Also, it's important for all of your patients with CLL to have a yearly cancer screening. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Tumor Talks. See you next time. Tumor Talks is an independent podcast that does not represent the institutional views or opinions of our employers, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering, or that of our guests. This podcast is created for medical education and should not be counted as medical advice.